Good morning, everyone. So this morning, I'd like to share some things that I feel like the Lord has put on my heart. Some of these things that I'm going to say, I've, I've said them before. So if you, like, hey, I heard him say that before, that's, it's not always bad for repetition. Uh, but I would like to talk about, I know the topic was grace, but I want to talk about grace and forgiveness and a bunch of other things this morning. Uh, but as, as someone once said, uh, to live above with those we love, oh, that will be glory. To live below with those we know, now that's another story. <laughs> right. and, uh, I, and I think I've shared this before, but it always reminds me of the joke. There's a guy who survives a shipwreck, and he's washed up on shore, and he decides to survey the land, kind of go along the beach to see like where he's at, and He's walking for a while, and he eventually turns the corner, and he sees what look like some structures on the beach. And soon enough, he sees a, a person on the beach, and the guy's running towards him, so he runs to the guy, and the guy's all excited. He said, how did you get here? And he said, well, I survived the shipwreck. He says, me too. He says, there's no need to walk any further. We're on an island I've been around. I've been, I've been here for years by myself. It's so good to see somebody else. He said, come back here. I want to show you these the, the house that I built and some other things that I've, I've put together. So they go back and he shows them this house and it's beautiful. It's like Swiss Family Robinson has all these you know, gadgets that he's put together. And the guy's like, wow, this is really incredible. I can't believe you built this. And he said, that's nothing. He's like, wait till I show you what's next door. So they go next door and the guy made a church. And he has all the sea glass. He made a whole wall of sea glass and the sunlight's coming through and all the colors and everything. And the guy's like, wow, this is really incredible. That's fantastic. He said, but I, if I remember right, there were three buildings. He says, I can't imagine. Like, what's in the other building? He said, well, that's the church I used to go to. <laughs> if you didn't think that was funny, it will get funnier as the day goes on and you think he was by himself on the island. Right? Uh, Paul Bilheimer said this, the continuous and wide fragmentation of the church has been the scandal of the ages. It has been Satan's master strategy the sin of disunity probably has caused more souls to be lost than all of the other sins combined. I don't know if that's true, but it should give us pause, shouldn't it? I mean, when, when people think, I, I, I'm afraid to do this, but, and I, I haven't seen anybody do this, but it would be interesting, you know, there's all these YouTube videos, to have somebody on the street and say, all right, give me the first three words that come to mind. Christians. What would they say? Love, unity, joy? I don't know. I, 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 that's what they should say. But that's probably not what they would say. And I'm always amazed at the ease with which those who are opposed to the gospel can lay aside huge differences and unite against the truth. But especially those who have the truth, how how little it takes for us to be torn apart. It's just incredible to me. So I have a, I have a lot of scripture today. I try to put some of the, the bigger verses on the PowerPoint just to save uh, you from having to turn to everything. But John 17, we just studied this on Wednesday evening, often called the Lord Jesus' high priestly prayer. So this is right before the cross. He says in verse 20, 
I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those who also believe in me through their word, that would be us, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one, I in them, and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me, and love them, even as you have loved me. And a few chapters before that, uh, which wasn't that long before he said this in the upper room, in John 13 we read, verse 34, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. That should be the first thing that if somebody says Christian, go. They should say love. So we see that Jesus said that we should love one another as much as he loves us. And then when he prays, he says that the Father loves us as much as he loves his Son. And you think about that episode with Peter when he's on the beach and he denied the Lord three times and then the Lord says to him three different times, do you love me? And he says, yes, I love you. But what does, how does Jesus respond? Good. Great, Peter. Like, that's not what he says, right? He says three different times, he says, tend my lambs, shepherd my sheep, and tend my sheep. So in other words, if you love me, Peter, show it, by how you interact with those who are mine. Think about that. If you love me, you know I do, Lord. Okay, show me. Tend my sheep. That you sent me and loved them, even as you have loved me. How much does God love us? Romans 8.32, it says, He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? What's, and I've said this before, what's the most valuable thing that exists? His Son. What, what thing is there that can compare to the one who spoke all things into existence? There's nothing. I, I think back to Wade LeBlanc, if you remember one of the last times he was here, he talked about how uh, he has a shirt that says, I am the wretch. Amazing grace. But think about this, how, you know, we think about, like, we are the wretch. We think about ourselves as worthless sinners, but how valuable are we to God that he would not spare his son, but deliver him up for us who are worthless, who are sinners, who are rebels? And it says in Hebrews 2.12.2, Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him, that's us. Think about that. The joy set before the Lord Jesus is having a relationship with us. He doesn't need us. He has a perfect relationship in the triune Godhead. He doesn't need me. 
But he gets joy from having a relationship with me. And that's why, for the joy that was set before him, it says that he dis- endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. <coughs> that he could save us. That he could rescue us. That he could buy us back. I, we read that this morning. That he, he chose us in him. When he created the world, he chose us. He decided, I'm going to make these people knowing what it's going to cost to redeem them, but I'm choosing to do that because I will have joy in having a relationship with them, even though they don't deserve it. Like, how many times did we read in the Old Testament that the Lord says, for my name's sake, I will do this? It's because of who he is that he saved us. And he did this while we were still enemies. In uh, Romans 5... 6-11, 6-11, we read, For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man someone will even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also exalt in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. He loved us while we were ungodly, while we were sinners, and while we were enemies of his. We weren't lovely, but he loved us. I am them and you and me, that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. How much does he love you and I? Uh, Ephesians 3, 13 through 19, Paul writes, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power, through his spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. That we may be able to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, that we may be able to know, that we will spend eternity trying to fathom the love that he has for us, that we have his love demonstrated to us because he sent his son, that the father loves us the same as the son, and and Jesus wants us to love him the way that he loves us. So if you don't know the Lord Jesus as your savior, that's the first step. But with that as our backdrop, uh, have you ever noticed that 17 of the 21 New Testament books, somewhere in the beginning, say something like this, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ? They all say that. That we would have grace and peace. So here's what I'd like to, to think about, kind of to guide our thoughts this morning. Love leads to grace. 
Grace leads to forgiveness. Forgiveness leads to unity. Unity leads to peace. Love leads to grace. Grace leads to forgiveness. Forgiveness leads to unity. Unity leads to peace. And grace is motivated by love. So what is grace? Grace, the the Greek word that's used for grace is uh, charis, which means kindness. And it's preeminently used of the Lord's favor. Freely extended to give himself away to people. And this is the, the part of the definition I like to think of. Always leaning towards them. I just think of like a father sitting on the chair when their child comes to them. They lean towards them. Like that's God's disposition toward us. He leans towards us. Right? He's there, leaning towards us. Uh, A.W. Tozer said this, Grace is the good pleasure of God that inclines him to bestow benefits upon the undeserving. Its use to us sinful men is to save us and make us sit together in heavenly places to demonstrate to the ages the exceeding riches of God's kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Right? It, that acronym, God's riches at Christ's expense. That's grace. Romans 8, it says, For if God is for us, who is against us? He's leaning towards us. And how has God shown us His grace? Obviously, well, He's, he's given us His Son. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all. And grace leads to forgiveness. Ephesians 1.7, it says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. The forgiveness and grace are connected. So what's forgiveness? Forgiveness is a release from penalty for behavior granted as a free favor. Free favor. So love leads to grace. Grace leads to forgiveness. And just as we've seen this demonstrated toward us by God through our redemption in Christ Jesus, that should impact our interactions and relations with fellow believers. In Ephesians 4, 25-32, it says, Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. That's the unity, right? We're literally members of one another. Be angry and do not let be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and do not give the devil an opportunity. An opportunity. He's waiting for a, a opening in the armor. Who steals? He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with one who has need. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Love leads to grace. Grace leads to forgiveness. Forgiveness leads to unity. Ephesians 4, 1 through 7 says, Therefore I, this is, comes before the passage I just read. This is the context. Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you, 
to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another. Being, you know what, that's, the, the tolerance is an interesting word today in our culture, but you don't tolerate somebody that you agree with, right? You have to tolerate somebody that's irritating or something that you disagree with, but you tolerate them, right? For showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. What's the measure of Christ's gift? That we've been given grace according to the measure of Christ's gift. What's the measure of Christ's gift? It's boundless. So that the worst sinner, Paul said he was the worst of sinners, I think I could beat him on that, right? But the worst sinner, there's plenty of grace to save him. And the person who thinks that I'm pretty good, but I still need to be saved, there's enough grace to save them too, right? There's grace according to the measure of Christ's gift. I must slide ahead. John, John 1, 14 to 16, the Lord Jesus said, the, and, well, it says about him, Then the Lord became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified about him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. For of his fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace, upon grace, upon grace, upon grace, right? And every day we need more grace, because every day we fail. People say, oh, I made a mistake. No, we fail. I fail. Sometimes I do it intentionally. I fail, right? And he has grace, and he has grace, and he has grace. And in Hebrews 12, whoops, Hebrews 12, 14 to 15, it says, Pursue peace with all men, and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. See to it, see to it that no one comes short of the grace of God. Think about that. That our grace should should match His grace. The grace that He has toward us should be reflected back towards other people who we have to tolerate, right? That no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled. That's a that's a high standard, isn't it? You say, well, I can't do that. I can't do that. But yet, in 2 Corinthians 9.8, it says, And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. God's not asking us to, to do something and then leaving us high and dry without the ability to do what he's asking us to do. George MacDonald said one time, I, I wonder if Jesus ever put anything in his pocket. I doubt he had any pockets. God is not a taker. He's a giver. And he gives, and he gives, and he gives. And if we need grace, he gives us grace. And if we need a lot of grace for certain people, he gives it to us. And you might be might be thinking like, well, you don't know so-and-so, right? They are especially hard to get along with. And we all know those people. And Peter was probably thinking of that person's ancestor in Matthew 18. So if you want to turn to Matthew 18, I don't have a slide on this, but it's a long passage. Matthew 18... Starting verse 21. Then Peter came and said to him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? 
up to seven times because this guy is he's a hard case man like he's hard to deal with and Jesus said to him I do not say to you up to seven times but up to seventy times seven did Jesus mean we should keep a count then well, you're, hey I just want to let you know I've been forgiving you but you're getting close right <laughs> you're this close right that's not the point right don't even bother counting for this reason the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves when he had begun to settle them one who owed him ten thousand talents was brought to him but since he did not have the means to repay his lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children and all that he had and repayment to be made so the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before him saying have patience with me and I will repay you everything. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. But that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. And he seized him and began to choke him, saying, Pay back what you owe. So this fellow slave said that so this fellow slave so his fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you. But he was unwilling and went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what was owed. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved, and came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. Then summoning him, his Lord said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? And his Lord moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. And we're not slaves either. We're children of the king. So how much more? And when we understand grace, it should lead to lead to forgiveness. But how often do we imitate that wicked slave, right? that we harbor bitterness in our heart. Compare that to 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 to 5. It says, Love is patient, love is kind, and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly, does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered. Love doesn't keep a record of the wrong that has been done. In Romans 4.8, it says, Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. It's the same Greek word that's used in 1 Corinthians 13. It's that word, lagidzomi, uh, or lagidzomi. Excuse me, I'm not a Greek scholar. I just play one on TV. I just read it in the book, right? But the, but the point of this word is that word that's used does not take into account. It means to reckon, to count, to charge with, to reason, to conclude, to think, to suppose. It's sort of like an accounting term. You put it in the ledger, right? You keep a uh, track of it. David Jeremiah, I was listening to a message that he gave recently, and he, he was speaking about the danger of taking into account the wrongs done to us. He said this, Resentment is the accumulation of of unexpressed anger. Love is not easily provoked, and the word provoked means to explode. Well, resentment is an explosion underground, whereas to be provoked means when you get angry, you ventilate, you blow off steam, and you chew somebody out, or you hit somebody, or whatever. 
Resentment means that when you're angry, you turn all that inward and you calculate it. You keep a record of it. He said it's anger gone underground. And because it's kept out of you, it mounts without us realizing its scope until finally it presses shut the door of our souls and spills over into the wellsprings of our lives and begins to pollute every part of us until it has poisoned us and we're no longer able to function. I, I heard this story, so I, I looked this up, and it was a, this is from a blogger named Kumar Manish, but it's a play called The Black Angel by a guy named Michael Christopher, and uh, this blogger writes, uh, what happens to us when we forgive someone? What happens to us when we're forgiven? He said, this play is about a former German army general, whose name is Engel, who tried to make a new life for himself and his wife outside a little French village. He had been imprisoned for 30 years, sentenced by Nuremberg War Crimes Court, and he had hoped that people would forget and forgive his terrible past. He built a log cabin in the nearby mountains, and he wanted to start anew. But there was a French journalist named Moreau who could not forget the past. His family had been massacred by the general's army. There was not a single survivor in the village, and for 30 years, Moreau had planned his revenge. He said to himself, if the Nuremberg court could not sentence Gen- General Engel to die, I will, his, I will pronounce his death sentence and execute it. He stoked the embers of hatred and fears in the mind of village radicals and revolutionaries. They conspired to burn down the cabin in, 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 during the night, killing the general and his wife. However, Moreau, because he was a journalist, still had some questions for the general. Why did he do it? After 30 years in prison, what did he feel now? So Moreau goes to the cabin, and he interviews the general, and he was surprised that the general and his wife uh, spent the whole afternoon with Moreau. And he probed the general's past action, and he was trying to analyze and, and find to see if he could learn some reason for the tragedy. And he found the general full of regret and repentance, that the general was actually waiting to download his guilt onto somebody. Moved by the general's sincere remorse, Moreau offered to smuggle the general and his wife to safety. He disclosed to them that the villagers would attack his cabin at night and kill both of them. The general said, We will accompany you on the condition that you forgive me. But Moreau could not forgive the general. He could save him, but forgive him never. That night the villagers burnt down the cabin and shot Engel and his wife dead. Think about that. It had become such a part of Moreau's life. For 30 years, his whole life was about revenge, that he would right the wrong that was done to him, that when the time came and he realized, you know what, this guy has remorse, this guy deserves to be forgiven, he couldn't do it. He said, I'll save you, but I can't let it go. Like, So really, think about what, like, what does that, what damage does that do to us? Holding on to that resentment, keeping account. And how important is forgiveness in the life of the believer? This is what Jesus said. He said, Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and present your offering. That's how important it is to God. 
we don't like to do that. We think, well, you know what, I'm I'm right with the Lord and I'm going to worship him and that guy he's he just needs to he needs to find he'll find out someday, right, that he's wrong. But that's not what God says. He says it's so important, before you come and worship me, go make that right. And then come and worship. In Matthew six twelve, when the Lord is they said, Lord teach us how to pray and the Lord's gives the, the Lord's prayer that we call it. But there's a line in there. He says, And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Teach us to pray, Lord. Okay, forgive us our debt as we forgive our debtors. What if God answered that prayer? What if he forgave us the way we forgive other people? I forgive you, but we can't have a close relationship anymore. I can't forget. There's just too much hurt that's been done. Can you imagine if God said that to us? Too much has happened. I can't let it go. And I fall short of this. And I'm guessing some of you do too. But that's the standard that we're called to, right? Remember, we're supposed to love others the way that He loves us. How much does God love us? It says in Psalms 103, He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness toward those who fear him. It's immeasurable. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Immeasurable. Just as a father also has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. How many times would you forgive your child? You know what? You've done it one too many times. Would you want that relationship to be fully restored or just partially restored? For he himself knows our frame. He's mindful that we are but dust. Clara Barton, the founder of the American Red Cross, was known to never hold resentment against anyone. One time a friend recalled to her a cruel thing that had happened to her some years previously, but Clara seemed not to remember the incident. Don't you remember the wrong that was done to you, the friend asked Clara? She answered calmly, No, I distinctly remember forgetting that. One of the most powerful examples of forgiveness in the life of a believer is the account of Corey Taboo. I don't know if you've ever read the book, The Hiding Place. It's very powerful. But uh, Corey and her family resisted the Nazis by hiding Jews in their home. They were ultimately discovered and sent to a concentration camp. Corey barely survived until the end of the war. Her family members died in captivity. Seared by this terrible trial by fire, Corey's faith in God also survived, and she spent much of her time in the post-war years traveling in Germany and elsewhere in Europe, sharing her faith in Christ. On one occasion, in 1947, while speaking in a church in Munich, she noticed a balding man in a gray overcoat near the rear of the basement room. She had been speaking on the subject of God's forgiveness, but her heart froze within her when she recognized the man. She could picture him as she had seen him so many times before in his blue Nazi uniform with the visored cap, the cruelest of the guards at the Ravensbrück camp where Corey had suffered the most horrible indignities and where her own sister had died. Yet there he was, and at the end of the talk, coming up the aisle toward her with his hand thrust out, Thank you for your fine message, he said. 
how wonderful it is to know that all of our sins are at the bottom of the sea. Yes, Corey had said that. She had spoke so easily of God's forgiveness. But here was a man whom she despised and condemned with every fiber of her being. She couldn't take his hand. She couldn't extend forgiveness to this Nazi oppressor. She realized that this man didn't remember her. How could he remember one prisoner among thousands? You mentioned Ravensbrook, the man continued. His hand still extended. I was a guard there. I'm ashamed to admit it, but it's true. But since then, I've come to know Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. It's been hard for me to forgive myself for all the cruel things I did, but I know that God has forgiven me. And please, if you would, I would like to hear from your lips too that God has forgiven me. And Corey recorded her response in her book. She said, I stood there. I, whose sins had again and again been forgiven, and I could not forgive. I could not have been more, it could not have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out. But to me, it seemed like hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I had ever had to do. For I had to do it. I knew that. It was as simple and as horrible as that. And still I stood there with the coldness clutching my heart. And so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, and sprang into our joined hands. And then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried with all my heart. For a long moment we grasped each other's hands the former guard and the former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did that. Love leads to grace. Grace leads to forgiveness. Forgiveness leads to unity. There can be no unity without forgiveness, and there can be no forgiveness without grace. This unity involves two parties. You have the offender and the offended. And as followers of Lord, the Lord Jesus, we should be diligent not to be the offender and to forgive when we perceive that we've been wrong. I think of, uh, Bob Gessner said this, and it never left me. He said, if you're to be offended, you must think that you are somebody. And I just watched a YouTube clip and I saw somebody and they said, Mike Tyson said the same thing. So, never thought I would be quoting <laughs> Bob Gessner and Mike Tyson in the same line, but it's true, right? It's the truth. <laughs> But neither end of the spectrum is good. We don't want to be the offender. We don't want to be the offend, easily offended. And we should not be speaking or acting in a way that's going to offend our brothers and sisters. In Galatians 5, 14 to 15, it says, For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, in the statement, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. Proverbs 6, the Lord lists seven things that he hates. You know what the seventh thing is? One who spreads strife among brothers. God hates that. Instead, what do we read in Ephesians 4, 15 to 16? It says, But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building of, up of itself in love. That we are all to be united as one body with one head, every part building up the body together, united in love. 
And sometimes there can be disunity in the body because the body is not fit together the way that it should be. I've seen this happen numerous times, unfortunately, in my life, where the hand wants to be the mouth and the mouth wants to be the foot and, you know, so on and so on. I, I happen to be, well, let me read this first. If in uh, John 13, uh, the Lord get, just gets done washing the feet of the disciples. And he says to them, If I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, the God of the universe who made everything, got down and washed your dirty feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you should do as I did to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you're blessed if you do them. I was listening to a, a message from Tom Taylor recently. The title of the message is Peace Among Brethren. It was given in Greenwood Hills, 1990. I think I was probably there. Uh, but he said this, once in a while you think you'd like to, if you could picture Tom Taylor, if you know, once in a while you think you'd like to serve in a particular line, and nobody thinks you should serve that way. That's where you have to come back and say, I'm a servant. And the servant essentially does what he's told. A servant does what he's told, not what he wants to do. That's my Tom Taylor <laughs> But in the same message, he said that in his opinion, the main source of the conflict among the Lord's people is a lack of consideration for one another. I think that's true too. So sometimes we're so focused on ourselves, whether it's because we have to be right about something, uh, or because we perceive that we're slighted in some way, that we can't see things from anybody's perspective except our own. And rather than go and speak to that brother and sister, we stew over it, right? We take account of it. We put it in our pocket and we let it build that mountain of resentment. Philippians 2 says, Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, if we have these things, make my joy complete by being of the same mind. It's interesting when people read this passage, often they start in, in verse 5. Right, having this having this attitude in yourselves. But notice the context. He says, Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. That's the context. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who existed, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death on a cross. We should do the same thing. We can't do what he did, but we should have the same attitude. That's Paul's point. We humble ourselves. If you think you are somebody, then you can be offended. If you're nobody, why should I be offended? Who am I? Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. Someone once said, and I think I've said this before, has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos all tuned to the same fork are automatically tuned to each other? They are of one accord by being tuned not to each other, but to another standard to which each one must individually bow. So 100 worshipers meeting together, each one looking away to Christ, are in heart nearer to each other than they could possibly be were they to become unity conscious and turn their eyes away from God 
to strive for closer fellowship. Fixing our eyes on Jesus. That's the, that's the key. That's the secret. Love leads to grace. Grace leads to forgiveness. Forgiveness leads to unity. Unity leads to peace. If there's no unity and no forgiveness, there can't be any peace. And this whole process begins with and must be rooted and grounded in love. First John, first John 4, 19 to 21 says, We love because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For the one who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. Romans 14, 19. So then we pursue the things which make peace and the building up of one another. We're all part of the same family. Let me. I want to close with this story. I read this, uh, and it, I think it brings this all together nicely. It's called Because I'm Yours. It's a story from a, an author named Timothy Paul Jones. He says, I never dreamed that taking a child to Disney World could be so difficult, or that such a trip could teach me so much about God's outrageous grace. Our middle daughter had been previously adopted by another family. I, Timothy, am sure this couple had the best of intentions, but they never quite integrated the adopted child into their family of biological children. After a couple of rough years, they dissolved the adoption, and we ended up welcoming an eight-year-old girl into our home. For one reason or another, whenever the, our daughter's previous family vacationed at Disney World, they took their biological children with them, but they left, they left their adopted daughter with a family friend. Usually, at least in the child's mind, this happened because she did something wrong that precluded her presence on the trip. And so, by the time we adopted our daughter, she had seen many pictures of Disney World, and she had heard about the rides and the characters and the parades, but, it, but when it came time to pass through the gates of the Magic Kingdom, she had always been left, she had always been the one left on the outside. Once I found out about this history, I made plans to take her to Disney World the next time a speaking engagement took our family to the southeastern United States. I thought I had mastered the Disney World drill. I knew from previous experiences that the prospect of seeing cast members in freakishly oversized mouse and duck costumes somehow turns children into squirming bundles of emotional instability. What I didn't expect was that the prospect of visiting this dream world would produce a stream of downright devilish behavior in our newest daughter. In the month leading up to our trip to the Magic Kingdom, she stole food when a simple request would have granted her a snack. She lied when it would have been easier to tell the truth. She whispered insults that were carefully crafted to hurt her older sister as deeply as possible. And as the days on the calendar moved closer to the trip, her mutinies multiplied. A couple days before our family headed to Florida, I pulled our daughter into my lap to talk about, to talk through her latest escapade. I know what you're going to do, she stated flatly. You're not going to take me to Disney World, are you? The thought hadn't actually crossed my mind, but her downward spiral suddenly started to make some sense. She knew she couldn't earn her way into the Magic Kingdom. She had tried and failed that test several times before, so she was living in a way that placed her as far as possible from the most magical place on earth. In retrospect, I'm embarrassed to admit that in that moment, I was tempted to turn her fear to my own advantage. The easiest response would have been, if you don't start behaving better, you're right, we won't take you. But by God's grace, I didn't. Instead, I asked her, is this trip something we're doing as a family? She nodded, brown eyes wide and tear-rimmed. Are you part of that family? She nodded again. Then you're going with us. 
Sure, there may be some consequences to help you remember that what's right and what's wrong, but you're part of our family and we're not leaving you behind. I like to say that her behaviors grew better after that moment. They didn't. Her choices pretty much spiraled out of control at every hotel and rest stop all the way to Lake Buena Vista. Still, we headed to Disney World on the day we had promised, and it was a typical Disney day. Overpriced tickets, overpriced meals, and lots of lines mingled with just enough manufactured magic to maybe consider going back again someday. In our hotel room that evening, a very different child emerged. She was exhausted, pensive, and a little weepy at times. But her month-long facade of rebellion had faded. When bedtime rolled around, I prayed with her, held her, and asked, So how was your first day at Disney World? She closed her eyes and snuggled down into her stuffed unicorn. After a few moments, she opened her eyes ever so slightly. Daddy, she said, I finally got to go to Disney World, but it wasn't because I was good. It's because I'm yours. It wasn't because I'm good. It's because I'm yours. And in Ephesians 5, 1, it says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love, just as Christ also loved you, and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a, as a fragrant, aroma, fragrant aroma. Let's close in prayer. Our God and Father, we thank you for your great grace and love and mercy toward us. Lord, we pray that we would reflect that love that you have to us, for us, to those who uh, we come into contact with, to those who are our fellow brothers and sisters in the family of God, Lord. We just pray that uh, you would help us to have grace and forgiveness and unity and peace because of your great and boundless love for us. We give you thanks for all that we have in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for the food that we have downstairs in our time of fellowship. We pray your blessing upon it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.